Scripture, let me ask you please to bow with me to pray. Father in heaven, now we come to this which is your word, we pray. As you have promised, that it would not return void, that is, that it would produce that which you have ordained for it to produce in our lives. That it might first be to your glory, of course, that we might hear it and reflect upon you and trust you more. So help us, God, even as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Isaiah and chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, I want to read verses 4 through 11. Isaiah and chapter 50, please. Please hear the word of God. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to those, to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, that I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. During this Advent season, we're taking up these various passages from Isaiah that consider this one who is the servant of the Lord. And as we've said, this expression, servant of the Lord, can be used of of people, uh, of Isaiah himself, as we read through this prophetic book. Uh, He is referred to as a servant of the Lord. can also be used of the nation of Israel, a servant of the Lord. But now we find Isaiah using it, really God using it, even this servant speaking in such a way that we realize that this particular servant and this partic- these particular passages can't be Isaiah, can't be the nation of Israel, can't be others to whom this uh, servant of the Lord uh, title may be given. For he's unique. Um, he's different. He's to do what no one else can really can really do. We mustn't miss the obvious, and that is that all this was written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And so as we come in this Advent season to consider this, we realize that, that Isaiah is writing of the Messiah who is to come, the Christ who is to come. He's writing of this one we know as Jesus 700 years before he actually comes. Now, put that in perspective. Uh, when, when I was in seminary, Karen and I lived in a house in New England little village called Anasquam that was built in 1750. Well, that was the old part. The new part was built in 1780. Many of the houses in that area had, had, had bullet holes from the Revolutionary War. At least that's what everyone said they were. And, uh, and, and so it was quite a place. We realized the house we were living in was, what, 250, 260? Well, then less than that. But now it's 250, 260 years old. But this was all written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Uh, it'd be like somebody writing in the 1300s and writing about someone born today uh, accurately. So that's, that's what we're looking at here. We can consider all of this, this very one who is indeed the servant of the Lord. And as we've been looking at this servant of the Lord in chapters 42 and 49, we find a number of things about him. We realize that he, he represents God. He comes from God. He's the one who's been chosen by God. God delights in him. God puts his spirit upon him. He speaks as... God, really. He speaks as one who is this prophet. And he comes to bring justice to the earth, righteousness to the earth. And he comes amazingly, 
not as a military leader or a political leader might come to condemn and to enslave, but he comes actually for the opposite purpose. He comes for those who are bruised, for those, like he says, are, are faintly burning wicks, those who are smoldering, for those who are blind, for those who are in captivity. He says, I want to come and free you. And so you get this sense that he's coming to spiritually free people from sin. And that's why he's coming, this very one who is the servant of the Lord. He comes, we read as well, in chapter 49, as this one who has the voice of God, who comes as this one who is the prophet, and he comes to be a light to the nations. It's bigger than just the nation of Israel. In fact, he's going to represent the people of God in such a way before God that he can be named Israel. But we know this isn't the nation of Israel, but the one who comes really to glorify God as Israel was to do, not in her unfaithfulness but in obedience and faithfulness. So he's going to come as one to glorify God, to obey him, to be faithful to God, to represent people to God, to be the very high priest of God's people. And he is then going to be a light to the nations, and it's going to be huge. It's going to be something that, 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 that all the nations will see God, and only through him, this one, this particular servant of the Lord. And so the the question is, well, can we really trust this prophetic word? And so God comes out to reason with us. You might remember that Isaiah's prophecy, we haven't read this, but the opening chapters begin where God says to his people, come, let us reason together. And that's what he's doing throughout this whole prophetic book. He's reasoning. And he's reasoning his way with his logic. He's saying, I'm going to tell you how to think about me. I'm going to tell you how to think about life. I want you to think the way that I think. And, and so, so as he lays this out in this prophetic book, we realize that God is saying, yes, this servant of the Lord is to come. And he's going to be the light to the Gentiles. He's going to bring justice and righteousness on the earth. And so he says, you can trust me because I'm God. And how can I, how can I convince you that I'm God? Well, I can convince you like this. That as God, you realize I'm the one who knows the end from the beginning. That is, I know it's to come. And so here's what's to come. So he tells the people of Judah, these people in Jerusalem, he tells them that a day is going to come when you're going to be exiled. And you're going to be exiled by the Babylonians. They're going to take you into a foreign place. And there will come also a time when a, when a man who's not from Israel named Cyrus will come and he will bring you back to Jerusalem. And so he lays this all out to them and, and all that happened. Uh, though he's writing in 700-ish B.C., Isaiah is, and prophesying at that time, we realize that 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and exiled the people of Judah. We realize that in 539 B.C., this one named Cyrus conquered the Babylonians. And we realize that in 538 B.C., as the book of Ezra begins, the first year of King Cyrus' reign, we realize that he sends all of the people of Judah back to Jerusalem. He says, you can go back. And so all of this takes place. What's God saying? He's saying, you can trust me. I'm God. There's nobody else, no other God who knows the end from the beginning. Nobody can can tell you what's going to happen like that. And God says, I tell you what's going to happen, not because I simply see into the future, but because I determine it and nothing can thwart me, I will bring this to pass. So if I bring that to pass, then surely I can bring this other to pass that I'm telling you about. So trust me. Uh, this whole prophetic business to God was nothing new. He had told Abraham that the Israelites were going to be in Egypt for 400 years, enslaved, and he would send one to deliver them, which he did. And now he's saying, you're going to be in exile again, but I'm going to bring one who will bring you out. But he says, now I have this servant in whom I want you to trust. I have this servant who's going to do more than Cyrus or Moses could ever have thought about doing. He's going to be a light to the whole world. He's going to be a light to the Gentiles. He's going to be a light to, to everyone. And you'll see things through him. And he will bring justice, righteousness, not in a particular place at a particular time, but he'll bring it on the face of the earth. So you can trust me with that. So now he comes and he begins to lay out again this servant of the Lord with great seriousness. Notice verse 10. He says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? He says, there's there's two approaches to life and two outcomes. He says, there's those who fear the Lord and obey the voice of his servant. 
And then, verse 11, he says, Behold all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your own fire, of your fire, and by the torches that you've kindled. This you have, ha- you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. He says, Those who fear the Lord, those who understand they walk in darkness, verse 10, will trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon God. Implied, have life. But those who don't, who live by their own light, they'll lie down in torture. The New Testament put it like this, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That kind of torture. Uh, Somebody who fears the Lord is someone who reveres him, who worships him, who holds him in awe. This, This idea of fear is that which causes one to be awestruck to worship. Because you see, that which we fear, we worship. And that which we worship, we obey. Now we can see this even if we take the the word fear in its normal kind of a context, that is being afraid of. For instance, there's some people who are afraid of the dark. Thus, they hold darkness in awe. And they worship it. And it dictates their life. If there's a dark place, they won't go. Why? Because it's dark. And they hold it in awe, and it dictates their life. If you're afraid of water, you're afraid of it, and, and, and you hold it in awe, and you say, I'm not going there. It dictates your life. That which we fear, we worship. That which we worship, we obey. You can always tell what one worships by what one obeys. We see this in the context of what we call idolatry. So if it's money or prestige or the thoughts of others, the opinions of others, or sex or whatever it is that, 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 that you fear, that you hold in awe, that dictates your life. You can see what you worship. And so God says, if you fear me, if you hold me in awe, if you worship me, here's what you'll do. You'll listen to my servant because he speaks on my behalf. And you'll obey him. If you revere me, you'll obey him. But if you don't, then you'll go your own way. You'll go after that which you fear, which isn't me. You'll go after your own way. Now, if you fear me and obey the voice of my servant, it's an acknowledgement that on your own you walk in darkness. But if you rely upon me, trust in me, fear me, then you see you'll walk in his light. But if you... Have your own light, your own torches. Go by your own way. The end will be torture. The end will be torment. The end will be destruction. It will not be good for you. You will not have life. So this isn't something that's small. This means everything. And so he lays out his servant, beginning in verse 4. And as we see the characteristics of the servant, it goes, it goes like this. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. He says, you know, I, morning by morning, listen to the Lord. He tells me of my life. He tells me what I'm to do. I listen to him. I get my instruction from him. And so, so you can, in a sense, trust me. And, and, and the reason I'm listening, the reason he's giving me this word is so that I can sustain with the word the person who's weary. So that's going to be true of me. If you're weary, burdened, I can give you that word that will give you rest and strength. Morning by morning, he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear. Now that little expression, open my ear, is a pregnant one. It's a, it's a great Hebrew idiom. In fact, you might remember, back in Deuteronomy chapters 15 and 21, there's a, there are scenes there of, of a person who so loves another who he refers to as his master that he's willing to give himself to that master, to be in service to that master, to be a servant to that master for the rest of his life. Now, there's various advantages and disadvantages to that, and there's various reasons why a person may want to do that. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 15 and 21. But, but my point is this. There was a ritual that took place when a person would say to another, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And that ritual went something like this. That person who was going to indenture himself, put himself in servitude to the other, would would put his head, if you will, against the doorpost of this one who is to be his master. And the master would take an awl, you know, one of those little pointy things that carpenters use to put holes in things. And he would take that 
an instrument, and he would put it against the earlobe of that one who was to be his servant. This happens every day in jewelry stores. So I don't think that. But um, for, for lesser reasons. And, and, and so he puts it against the doorpost and sticks that all, and boom! Puts a hole in his ear. He opens his ear. He puts a hole in, in his earlobe and attaches him. At that moment in time, you have this picture. Okay, you're attached to my household. But it's significant that it's in his ear because he's saying now, what this means is that, that your ear is now open, which means you will listen to me and you'll obey me. You'll be my servant. And so that's the picture here. And so this servant of the Lord is saying, I belong to the household of God. And I open, he's opened my ears and I belong to him. And I will do everything that he tells me to do. And thus, he says, you can trust me because I represent him. You can trust me because I'm speaking on his behalf. You can trust me because everything that I say, everything that I do, comes from him. The Lord has opened my ear. And he says, I was not rebellious. Unlike Israel, unlike us. He says, I wasn't rebellious. I turned not backward. And he says, I did all of that knowing that my life would not be easy. I did all of that knowing that I would suffer. Because morning by morning, I was told about all of this. I knew this. This was no surprise to me. I could even think about going all the way back into the counsel of God pre-creation to know that this one had said, yes, I will come. I will come and vindicate your name, Father. So as I turned that back, when I gave my back to those who strike, thus I'll be beaten. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, which means I'll be disgraced and dishonored. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, now why could he do this? Well, he says, verse 7, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. And therefore I have set my face like a flint. Another Hebrew idiom just simply means that my face became stone, meaning I set my face in a particular direction to go in that direction and nothing could stop me because it was like flint. It was like stone. We use that expression. To, to set your heart, to set your, your face like flint means that uh, it's, 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 it's set in stone and it can't be changed. And he said, I knew all of this. I knew it was to come. I knew the suffering. I knew the pain. I knew all of that. Yet still, because I trusted my father, I knew him. Uh, I listened to his voice. And, and, and I set my face like flint even to go through all of that. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let him stand up. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. I have to ask the question, is he crazy, this person? And he says, no, I'm not crazy at all. I know exactly what I'm doing. And I know exactly for whom I'm doing it. And I know exactly by whose strength I'm doing it. He will vindicate me. He will be with me. Though my adversaries will declare me guilty, he will vindicate me. He will give me life. I trust I trust him. I won't be destroyed ultimately. They will be destroyed ultimately. And so he knows them. He is not, if you will, Crazy. Now I must say that when it comes to Advent, the shepherds are my favorite. I mean, other than Jesus. I mean, you know that. The shepherds are my favorite. In fact, as we come to study, as we come to, to observe Advent, there's various traditions in the history of the church. Uh, not every tradition runs with, with prophets and angels and shepherds and Bethlehem. Those are our four little candle symbols, if you will. It's an old one, and, and most use that if you look in the history of Advent and the history of the church and all that. Some, however, go a bit more topically and use, lose, use topics like light for the first week and then, then faith or then, I guess the second week is hope, the third week is faith, the fourth week is peace. So we can do it that way. In fact, we can make up our own. There's nothing in the Bible about saying, you know, four candles, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, it's just, this is a creation of the church, this whole Advent season, and all of these candles and all of that, and a creation of the church for instruction and worship, so it's helpful. But but I, I like this one because I like the shepherds. And the reason I like the shepherds is because I just often think of what it must have been like to be them. On that night, 
when that angel shows up and starts talking about this one who's being born, and then this heavenly host comes and, whoo you know, I just wonder what it would be like. The angels, and why them? I mean, I would have gone to the kings in the chamber of commerce at least, you know, the head of the chamber. Somebody like that. I, these shepherds, why the, why the shepherds? In a sense, we don't know. There's no, nothing in the Bible that tells us, well, this is why the shepherds. But if we think about them for a minute, we realize that while you and I may romanticize the life of shepherds, we sort of do. We read about shepherds in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, and, and they seem to be people we should revere. But please understand that in the first century, they were not revered. Nobody trusted, nobody particularly liked shepherds because they smelled like sheep. And they really didn't socialize that much because they spent a lot of time with sheep. And they only knew one another, really, and they mostly knew their sheep. In fact, they had to work on the Sabbath because you couldn't just give the sheep a day off. Say, rest, you know, I'm going to go. And so they couldn't be like everyone else in Israel, thus they weren't really trusted as those who would be righteous. In fact, if there was a court case, no one would call a shepherd to testify because their, their word really wasn't trusted. And so here comes this announcement of this Jesus to be born, the king of the world, the king of the earth and all of that the savior of the world, and it's made to these shepherds, these lowly, despised ones. Hmm. And then when you think about Jesus, you think about Jesus growing up, you realize that we don't have very much about his early life. Uh, we have, you know, the, the birth time and all of that. Then we have this little expression that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, and all that means is he got smarter and taller essentially, and, and then people liked him at that point in time. And God delighted in him because of who he was, because of his obedience and all of that. But then Jesus comes on the scene with his cousin John. We call John the Baptist. And it was a striking moment, I'm sure, for John because he was wondering why Jesus would have shown up at that particular time and that particular place because John was baptizing. And his baptism wasn't really... Baptism, like we baptize in terms of Christian baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of that. But it was purely a baptism for repentance. And it was reserved mostly at that time for Gentiles. That is, for people who weren't of Israel, for people who weren't Jewish, and for Gentiles who had some sense of who God was and desired to come and worship the God of the Israelites. And so they would be baptized, baptized for repentance. It was that kind of thing, which is what made this whole baptism scene so repulsive to the religious leaders in Israel because they were saying, John, you shouldn't be talking to us about being baptized. You shouldn't be talking to us about this repentance. You should be talking about Gentiles. And John would say, no, 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 no. Don't you understand that you all are so lost that you're like those who are outside of Israel. And so he said, you need to be baptized for repentance. Well, Jesus shows up. And John has to wonder, what are you doing here? And Jesus says, to be baptized. And John says, no way. I'm the one who would need to be baptized. Not, not you. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. You need to baptize me so that all righteousness can be fulfilled. That is, this is right for me to do. You get the sense he, would have, he could have said, if he's following the line of Isaiah, I talked to my father this morning and he said, go get baptized. Morning by morning, I've been instructed this morning. I know I'm to be baptized today to fulfill righteousness, to obey my father. Because you see, I've come. So that I can identify with the despised. I can come. I've come so I can be identified with sinners. I'm the sinless son of God. But, 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 but I've come for a particular reason. And that is to be identified with these very ones who need to repent. So here Jesus was. Baptized. Sinless, but baptized. To identify. Identifying with those very ones who were Weary and burdened, those very ones who were bruised, those very ones who were like a, a smoldering wick, those very ones who were blind, those very ones who were in captive to sin. I said, I'm coming to identify with them. And the religious leaders despised all those who were being baptized because they didn't think themselves in need. Jesus was there being baptized. Now, 
As Jesus came, he said, remember, I'm not coming on my own authority. I come from this one who has sent me. I'm I'm this very one who I speak the very things that that, that the Father has has told me to speak. For instance, in John chapter 7 and verse 16, Jesus puts it like this. He said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. He says, listen, I'm speaking that which God has given to me to speak. And then in chapter 8 and verse 28 of John's gospel, Jesus says it like this. When you've lifted, the son of, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak, just as the Father taught me. And then in chapter 12 and verse 49, Jesus puts it like this. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I I say as the Father has told me. And then in chapter 14 and verse 24, Jesus says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's. Who sent me? That is, Jesus is saying, morning by morning, Jesus is saying, I, I get all that I say from my Father. Thus, you can trust me. So close was Jesus' identity with his Father that they thought they should kill him for blasphemy. Because they said, He, a man, though he be a man, is making himself out to be God. So they heard him, at least. They understood all of that. And Jesus said, I come so that my word will sustain the weary. I come for those who are humble. I come for those who know themselves to be in need. He said, I didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. Not that any is righteous. But he says, I know there are some of you who think you're righteous. Trust me, you'll never get it. But I've come for those who understand they're in darkness. I come for those who are in sin. He said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. So if you think yourself found, if you think yourself in, then I can't do you any good. But if you know yourself to be lost, you know yourself to be out, then I come and I can help you. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. So they've come for the lame, the crippled, the blind, the sick. That has very little to do with your income or your health but a great deal to do with who you are in the very presence of God. So if you know yourself, he says, to be poor in spirit, if you know yourself to be crippled, if you know yourself to be blind, if you know yourself to be enslaved to sin, then then I've come for you. And so he says, trust in me, really. And he comes then to suffer. He knew why he had come. He knew that he had come indeed to suffer. For instance, as he was speaking with his disciples on one particular day, you might remember it was the day that, that uh, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he got various answers. Peter finally came up with the right one. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then verse 21 in Matthew 16, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, to be raised. Nothing would keep him from that. In fact, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 9, in verse 51, Luke lays it out as Isaiah had laid it out. And he writes, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, some versions put it, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And he knew what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem. It'd be rather like saying, I know when I go home, I'm, I'm going to be grounded for a month. And then you go home. <laughs> Some people say, well, then don't go home. But he said, I know what's going to happen when I get there. I know what's going to happen when I get there. I'm going to be killed. And knowing that, just like Isaiah had said, he set his face in stone. If you had looked at Jesus and you could see really behind the scenes and, and see his face, you would realize at that point in time he was looking at only one thing, And that is, he was looking at Jerusalem. He was looking to go. And once he got there, we know what happened to him. We know, indeed, that he did suffer, just as Isaiah said that 
he would suffer. For instance, when he was in the presence of the high priest, the high priest said to him, I adjure you, this is at his trial, by the living God, tell us, if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so, but I tell you from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves, deserves death. And then they spit on his faith, face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And then in Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and they led him away. To crucify him, beaten, spit upon, his beard pulled, his back shredded, ultimately, to be killed. Just like the prophet had said, was he crazy? Why would he do such a thing? We know that he wasn't crazy. I mean, he was quite rational. He remember him in the garden. Jesus poured out his heart. He knew what was going to take place. He, he didn't go into this sort of skipping and jumping. He, he, he knew that, that, that he was going to face not simply the mutilation of his body, not simply that physical pain, not simply the emotional pain of betrayal and embarrassment and shame and all of that. But he knew he would face the very wrath of God. And he cried out, but yet there was something impelling him, something compelling him, something that moving him to, to follow after this word from his father. And that is that he trusted his father. He knew that ultimately his father would be with him. He knew that his father would vindicate him. He knew that his father would not leave him in shame. And so he went. It would have been irrational for Jesus. It would have been unreasonable for Jesus not to follow that whom he knew. Now the question for us is, how does this help us? I mean, how, how does this suffering of Jesus, this obedience of Jesus, how does this really come to help us in the context of our own lives? Well, if we put it in the phrase of, of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10, do we really fear the Lord? Do we obey the voice of the servant? What is here that would cause us to fear God, to obey the voice of his servant, that we might trust God and rely, rely upon him? Well, this first that this clearly shows to us that God is not aloof from us. It isn't as if God says, well, listen, folks, you got yourself into this mess. Now get yourself out of it. He identifies with us. He comes. The very Lord of glory, the Son of God, comes, born of this virgin, that is, born from God, yet born from her, thus God and man. And he comes to live in the midst of our lives and experience the worst of our pain, the worst of our suffering, that he might know exactly and more so who we are and how we feel. He knows that deeply. In fact, the author of Hebrews would put it like this in Hebrews in chapter 2 and verse 17. He writes, Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This idea of being merciful, faithful high priest, priest, one who represents people, being merciful means that I get it, I understand, I know who you are. See, mercy flows out of empathy. Mercy flows out of knowing the real need of the other. And there's a sense in which, because God has become man and dwelt among us, that he knows, he knows in a way that we, we can't even comprehend. Because as us, he gets it. Chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 
16, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy, find grace to help in time of need. This is saying, since Jesus lived this out, since he knows, he empathizes, sympathizes with us, then he is not only able but willing to help. He's merciful. And so we can go to him, and when we do, he understands. One of the sad ironies of the American-African slave trade was that the slaves got something that their masters, who claimed often to be Christians, never got. And that is the real identity of Jesus. As these slaves were beaten and enslaved, obviously, they looked for anyone who could sympathize, who could empathize with them. To whom did they go? They sang. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And they didn't sing that because they had learned about the omniscience of Jesus that he was in heaven looking and saw everything they were going through. They could have said that. Yeah, he knows what's going on. But it wasn't that. It was a knowing knowing. He knows the trouble we've seen. They heard of him who had been beaten. They heard of him who had been disgraced. And they says, "Ah, we know one to whom we can appeal to this Jesus. And he would say, yes, I know the trouble you've seen, and I've seen more. I know what you've felt, and I've felt more. I know how you've lived, and, and my life was worse even than that. So there's this appeal to Jesus, this one who's seen, who knows our trouble, who empathizes with us. And so he says, fear me, God does. Look at what I've done. Now trust me, rely upon me, come to me, and I will not, I will not put you to shame. You can trust me. That's the reasoning, that's the logic of God. He says, look at my son. Listen to him. Not only his lips, but listen to his life. Look what he did. Look what happened to him. Now trust him in the midst of your difficulty. Can you be going through anything worse than what he went through? Ah. Go to him. Trust him. He will help. He gets it. He understands. And you say, but he didn't sin. I sin all the time. How can he help me in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my sin? And, and that's the very point of it, you see. Number one, he, he, he faced temptation 24-7. He faced it all the time. He never succumbed. He went deeper into temptations in terms of being tempted than you and I ever do because normally we give in in the first 10 minutes. But he fought them all the way. And because he overcame temptation, he can help us. Thus, the apostle with great confidence in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 can put it to us like this, verse 13. No temptation or no trial, no difficulty, no circumstance of life, nothing, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, including the Son of God. So there isn't anything that's come to you that isn't common to human existence. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, he says, listen, come to me. I will help you. My son will help you. He intercedes always. He lives to intercede. And his intercession will be, in fact, successful. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the author writes this, Consequently, he, that is, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives to intercede. He lives to protect. He lives to defend. He lives to help. And so God says, won't you trust me? Won't you come to me in time of trouble? Why would you go to yourself? Why would you go to any other? Won't you come to me in times of trouble? Look at my servant. Consider him. And we say, but but, but God, why is there suffering at all? Why why can't you put an end to this? Why must there be suffering? And of course, we don't know the answer to that particularly at this moment in time. We don't know it in its completeness. In one sense, 
folks would argue that God must not be both good and powerful. Because if he was good and powerful, he would put an end to suffering. He would put an end to injustice. So thus, either he wants to and can't, or doesn't really want to. Now, we know that a day will come when justice will come. He says, my servant will come and he'll bring justice. But in the midst, he kind of shuts our mouth because he says, you can't really argue like that because I've endured your suffering. I know what that suffering is. In fact, I've read this to you before, but there's a, there a, a, a play called The Long Silence. And in it is this piece. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God really judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups set forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most, a Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed, arthritic, thalidomide child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured at last. Let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. There to be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when at last, when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. See, while everything isn't explained, perhaps, our mouths are shut. How can we talk back to him? This one who has suffered. And he says, I get it, I understand. And he calls us, you see, to discipleship. He calls us to follow after him. So we know in the course of life there's suffering for us. But he says, this suffering isn't the wrath of God upon you. I've taken that. This suffering is to train you, is to grow you up, it's to mature you. And so we read passages in Scripture that sustain us. For instance, like James in chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its perfect effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. He says, Consider him, that is, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, that you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding of your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he goes on to put it like this. He says, it's for discipline or training, maturity, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them. So shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. He says there's purpose to all of this. Just as I send my son, he suffered. Our suffering isn't atoning as his, but because his was atoning, because we now belong to him, he says, trust me in this. Even in the midst of your suffering, there's hope. There's hope because I'm at work. And I'm at work to grow you up, to mature you, to conform you to the image of my son. And I will not, I will not put you to shame. I will not leave you out to dry. For in the same way that Jesus knew as he heard from his father that he would be vindicated, that though his adversaries would declare him guilty, his father would receive him. We know this too. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the very point of it. Even Jesus in his own life was sustained by that very fact. If my father is for me, who can be against me? If my father has called me to this, then then mustn't I go through it? Isn't that the right thing? Isn't that the reasonable thing? Isn't that the sane thing? Isn't that the thing that I really should do? Because he's called me this. I can trust him. And so he called. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he gives us the proof. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He said, even if you face death, so no, in all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God says, consider my servant. Listen to his voice. And when you do, you will then rely and depend and trust upon me. In all of life, even in the midst of its most difficult, confusing, trying, tempting times. Is that unreasonable? No, not at all. Not when you see him, he says, on the night that... He said on the night that he was betrayed, it is said of him, our Lord Jesus took bread and broke it. After giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and again after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often... As we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What do we declare? We declare that he came. We declare that he obeyed his Father. We declare that he trusted his Father. We declare that he suffered for us. We declare that he gave himself for us that we might trust in him. Is that reasonable? Yeah. Why? He represented God. He came as God's very own. He came and entered into our life like no one else has. He came and entered into our life in the sense of saying, listen, listen, I love you. I'm not aloof from you. I know now your pain. I feel it. I understand the agony of sin because I took its penalty in a way that no one could. And I've experienced your life, the sadness of it, the difficulty of the weakness of it. So trust me. I now live to intercede for you. Come to me. And I will help you. No one else can. Your alternative is to live by your own light. The torches that you have made. Is that reasonable? No. Let me ask you to bow with me. 
just for a moment and spend this time. I, I want you just to, just to take two minutes and in your own heart ask yourself this. Do I really fear the Lord and obey the voice of his servant? Or do I live by my own light? I really fear the Lord. Do I obey the voice of his servant? Do I rely upon God and trust him? Or do I live by my own light? Where you live by your own light, repent. Lay that before God. And receive his forgiveness. And trust him. Just take a moment reflecting upon your own life. Father in heaven, we confess that we live at times in ways that are very unreasonable. We trust ourselves. How silly. We think we know it best. We think we can have enough strength. We forget to pray. We forget to receive grace from your word and help. And rather than to go to this one who intercedes for us, who knows, who understands, who helps, we ignore all of that and grit our teeth and bust our way through or live complaining. Forgive us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us knowing every temptation we face, knowing every trial that comes our way, knowing every pain that we could experience, knowing every sorrow and every fear. And so we pray that you would intercede for us, that you would help us, that you would give us strength. At the end of the day, we could look back and say, God has been with me. That you would give us great comfort in knowing, God, that you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. Therefore, having done all of that, will you not also, along with him, give us all that we need? Oh, God, may we see your servant and trust in him. So I pray that you would take this bread and juice and use it to help us, to help us see him, to help us... Realize his suffering and his sympathy for us and his work on our behalf. I pray that you use it in such a way that we will know he's present here with us to help us, that we can lay our burdens before him and he will give us strength and wisdom and forgiveness. Please meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace. Evangelical Presbyterian Church is the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all who know themselves to be in darkness, to be sinners without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And it's in his sovereign mercy that he brings to us light, that we might live. That we receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, that is, as the Savior of sinners. And it's our heart's desire not to live by our own light, by our own torches, but to rely and depend upon Him. If that's true for you, let me invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Please come, take a piece of bread, dip it, dip it in the cup. And see the servant of the Lord and trust in Him. Please come.